on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. If math is really noticing, describing, and generalizing patterns, then your culture, how you see things, how you understand the world is a part of your culture and it comes into how you, how you do those things. A common question asked by educators who want to honor and center their students' cultural identities is, how do you do that in a subject like math? They could see it happening in subjects like English language arts and social studies, but not math. To many, math doesn't have the scope of topic deeply relevant to identities of learners. To many, the numbers, procedures, and concepts covered in the average math class are completely neutral and require no cultural considerations. But if you ask somebody like Dr. Pamela Seda, she would say that conclusion just don't add up. Dr. Seda takes some time to discuss her book, Choosing to See, a framework for equity in the math classroom. And we cover the best practices, worst myths, and urgent need to deepen mathematical strengths through leveraging assets that students already have. This is the LP. Our next guest today is one I had a little bit of anxiety about interviewing for her book. That's because I have my own little issues regarding math and math instruction, but the book surely soothed those issues. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Pamela Seda, co-author of the book, Choosing to See, a framework for equity in the math classroom. She is a wife, mother, and math teacher with over 30 years of experience. She got her bachelor's in math education at the University of South Florida and her master's and PhD in math education at Georgia State University. She came back to the K-12 education space as a teacher, coach, and coordinator, which is awesome because a lot of people don't come back. And then she is always presenting at conferences. Without further ado, Dr. Seda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Now, before we get deep into your book, shout outs to the good brother, Kendall Brown, as co-author as well. We know you worked on it too, good brother. I want to know, what was your favorite text as a kid? What was your favorite text as an adolescent? And what was your favorite text as an adult? Okay, so probably, I, I'm going to be honest. I didn't, I loved, to, I always loved learning, but reading was never really my favorite thing. I read to, just to learn, so fiction wasn't really one of my favorites, but I remember reading this biography on Jackie Robinson. I was a real baseball fan when growing up. Of course, it was for a school project. I had to do a book report, so I chose Jackie Robinson, and I remember my teacher trying to talk me out of it and saying, you're not interested in that. Why don't you pick a book that you're interested in? And I'm like, I am. So I think that was one of mm -hmm. my first experiences with sexism, you know, in, mm -hmm. in education, but, you know, she relented, and I wrote my book report about Jackie Robinson. That was one of the things I remember as a kid. In adolescence, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really remember having a favorite text at all because I wasn't really into reading. Later on, as an adult, and I know this may sound a little cliche-ish, but really, I love the Old Testament stories. Some of my favorite stories, one is Esther. I love the story yeah. of Esther just because I feel like, one, is she was a strong woman. She saved you know, her whole nation. But I, I, I so identify with her in the sense of, you know, I think about that she was placed in that position for such a time as this. And I really feel like even with my book and where I'm in my career, I feel like I've been positioned in this place for our, where we are politically as a nation, where as a country we're trying to deal with education. So yeah. No doubt. Yeah. It's always interesting hearing people's reading journeys. And I appreciate you kind of uh, leading us up to and through this moment. Thank you for sharing. 
So let's actually hop into choosing to see. Can you break down for the good people who haven't gotten a chance to read it yet? What is your communication style and how does it show up in this text and how does it potentially impact people's reception of your message? So as a former high school math teacher, my job was to make my take an abstract concept in high school math and make it plain. So I tend to be one of those very, let's make it clear, make it plain. And then I also want to connect it to things because math is always so abstract. I always want to connect it to something the kids already know. And so that was pretty much my style, even in the book. I kind of say it, it's like my love letter to teachers. I've never met a single teacher who didn't want their kids to be successful, but I saw a lot of teachers who just didn't know what to do with their kids who weren't successful because they taught in the ways that they were taught and they did what they knew to do. They were like, well, this is how I learned math. This is all I know how to do. And so in the book, I just have, I have a kind of a real direct communication style and say, here's my journey. I'm not telling you, it's not a matter of just giving you information, but I'm sharing my own journey. It's very research-based because I am a scholar and I want to make sure that what I'm, I am telling people is research-based. But I also just give teachers very specific strategies. Here are some things you can do. Here are some specific things you can do to implement this. And I share my own personal stories so that teachers understand that this is not, I'm not just a talking head. It's not just something that I read in a book somewhere. It's real stories and that these strategies really do impact kids, which to me is the reason why I wrote the book. What are three words or concepts that are routinely used in the text that you think would be important to know? Well, I guess the first word would be equity. And what, what does that mean? And the way we defined it, you know, people have all different kinds of ideas about what equity is. And for us, we said it's simply making sure that every kid gets what they need to be successful in mathematics. And everybody doesn't need the same thing. So if you give everybody the same thing, you're not being equitable. But if you make sure that you give everybody what they need, but you can't do that if you don't know your students, if you don't build relationships with your kids to figure out what they need, if you're not engaging with them, if you don't stop talking at some point in time and listen to your kids and let them talk to you and help allow them to help you figure out what they need, then you can't be an equitable teacher. You can't give them what they need. So um, I think that's the first term. Of course, then there's the ICU care, which is the acronym for our framework, I-C-U-C-A-R-E. I is include others as experts. C is be critically conscious. You understand your students well. The second C is use culturally relevant curricula. A, assess, activate, build on prior knowledge. R, release control. And E, expect more. And then I think the last one would probably be math, mathematics, because of course we're talking about mathematics throughout the term, I mean, throughout the book. And I just, what, what does it mean to do mathematics? And it's not about regurgitating principles or procedures that teachers just teach them. It's seeing, describing, and generalizing patterns. That is what mathematics is to us. Allowing kids to see patterns, notice patterns, describe those patterns, and then generalize those patterns. And that's the work of doing math. And as teachers, math teachers, that's our goal. Should we get the kids to do those things and not just the teacher do all the work? 
So, so many times what we give to students that we call math is math that somebody else has done. And then we just say, oh, okay, now I just need you to replicate what somebody else has done. To mm -hmm. me, that's like telling somebody the end of the movie before they go into the movie. You make me have flashbacks in the classroom. Okay, so back to your text. Who do you believe will feel the most seen and or heard through your text? Um, classroom teachers, because I feel like as a society, we have all these expectations on teachers, but we don't show them how to do the work. We say, oh, well, we, we you need to close the gap here and you need to do this and you need to do that. We, you need to have you know, more equitable outcomes, but people don't say how to do it. They just dump it on teachers. Well, you figure it out. I see that all the time. It's I, I just have the utmost respect and honor for those who are in the trenches doing the work. And that's who I wrote this book for. And I think they will be able to recognize themselves. They'll be able to connect to the stories. They'll be able to connect to, I'm not beating them over the head. I'm not saying right. you should have done this and that you were wrong for doing this. I'm saying I'm in this journey and I'm holding out a hand. I'm reaching out a hand and saying, come alongside with me. Let's, let's walk this journey together. Yeah. I get that sense very much. I, I feel like in the education reform space or any space in education outside of a school building or classroom, it can be really hard to speak to that nuanced line of like wanting teachers to correct some malpractice, but also not being hyper judgmental. Because there, are, I believe there are some things that need to be addressed and that are in teachers' sphere of influence control to address. And sometimes that can be a real stubborn process to change. However, with that being said, actually being speaking and thinking from the perspective of a teacher when you're doing that is very important because it's an extremely tough job. It's an extremely tough job. Even if you have the will and the skill and the mindset and the skill set, like it's, it's an extremely tough job. And sometimes you have the, the will, but, and you want the skill set, but it's not always there yet. You may have people falsely accusing you or, or talking to you crazy, <laughs> like you're not set up for success. Well, I've, I felt the, 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 the opposite of that tone in this book where it, it feels like a walk. It doesn't feel like marching orders. It doesn't feel like finger pointing. It feels like, yo, this is how we can do this. Take a look. It's involved, but not as complicated as you'd imagine. Walk with me. How often do you believe that mimicking a procedure is still like the status quo of the average math classroom? Like how often? Probably 90%. Wow. Some of that are teachers who know that mimicking is not necessarily the best way, but they still engage in it because of the pressure of testing and standardized testing and the pressure to complete the pacing guide and the pressure to get through the curriculum. And so for a lot of teachers, they're like, well, that's all I have time for. But I also think for a large, probably more than half the teachers, they believe that that's what good instruction is because that's what, that's how they were taught. So I think more than half teachers think that mimicking, teaching kids to mimic procedures is what math is all about. So our, you know, our current public education system was built on a factory model. Right. You know, that's why we created public education. We needed a system that would legitimize the process for who's going to work in the fields, who's going to work in our factories, 
and who gets the privilege of being able to be a professional. And our schooling system sorted kids as that process. That's what it was created to do. But our society, we don't, you know, we don't have those factories anymore. That's the, that's not what we need. That's not the needs of our learners. That's not the needs of our society. Technology has totally revolutionized jobs and the needs. And everyone, I don't care whether you go to college or whether you go in a trade, everyone needs problem solving. Everybody needs to be able to think. Everyone needs to be able to reason, which we didn't want people thinking and reasoning in a factory, right? Mm. <laughs> that, that was the opposite of what we needed back then. So, but we haven't changed our model. Nope. Clearly 90% still, uh, still uh, mimic and do. That's, yeah, clearly hasn't changed. If math is just about mimicking procedures and it's divorced from sense-making and reasoning, then culture doesn't have anything to do with it. Mm. But if math is really noticing, describing, and generalizing patterns, which require sense-making, then your culture, how you see things, how you understand the world, how you go about communicating, all of that is a part of your culture and it comes into how you how you do those things. The things that you notice is going to be dependent upon your worldview and your experiences, your past experiences. How you describe that, the language you use is dependent mm -hmm. upon your culture. And the generalizations you make is still going to be dependent upon your past experiences, your community orientations, all that. Yeah. You know, it was it was funny that you brought up like language impacting your understanding of mathematics. You know, in your forward uh, Gloria Ladson Billings talks about that with like Chinese. There isn't like an 11 or 12, so to speak. It's like, you know, 10 and one and then 10 and two. And right? their language helps them and our language hurts us, like undermines. Yeah. yeah. I've spoken about this when our understanding of fractions. One of the reasons why students have such difficulty with fractions is because there's two numbers. So they, you know, they see three fifths. Mm -hmm. And so they, most kids try to understand that it's two numbers and they don't make the connection that this is two numbers that we use to represent one quantity. So even with language, if we say, instead of saying three fifths, you say, these are three one fifths. That's huge. Mm -hmm. When I've taught algebra, when we see that abstract five X, people, you know, don't understand it. But then I say, well, I read it and I say five X's. If I just read it and I say five X's, then people understand, oh, it's kind of like five apples and five oranges, five X's. Okay, now I know it's an X plus X plus X plus X plus X because it's five X's. So mm. language is huge. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm thinking like, dang, that would have been helpful to think about like that. Five <laughs> X's. One of, one of my favorite parts of your book is you encourage people to be color conscious, not color blind, right? And the idea of color conscious, right? It really stuck out. Color blindness is, is not really a true term because unless you are, have been diagnosed as being <laughs> colorblind, you do see color. It's just, you're not willing to acknowledge it for whatever reason, mm -hmm. whether it could be because it makes you uncomfortable because of the historical implications of what color has been historically, but colorblindness is not really a thing. It's really in the context of education, it's not really a thing. So color consciousness, or I've heard somebody say color celebrate, is making a conscious decision to celebrate that aspect of your students and other aspects that impact their identity, their opposite okay. parts of on the color wheel.
Well, let's let's get a little bit more into the ICU care uh, framework because it, you know, and, and reading through it, it's just amazing to see all the different offerings and contributions and contextualizations of like culturally responsive teaching. You know, ours uh, is you know producing instruction that's grade level, engaging, affirming, meaningful. You know, right. you, you have ICU care. But the interesting thing about this is, you know, this is a framework for mathematics uh, instruction. But when I read over them, right, include uh, others as experts, be critically conscious, understand your students, use culturally relevant curricula, assess, activate, and build on prior knowledge, release control, and expect more. Like, I feel like these could apply to any other subject matter, right? Can you further explain upon the often overlooked commonalities between math instruction and other subjects? Because, you know, a lot of times we act like, and I'm definitely guilty of this too, like math is its own animal, its own beast, like it, it's, it's different over there, right? But can you possibly explain how there's some overlooked commonalities? Well, yeah. So so the fact that you're right on when you say that those principles can be applied in other areas, and that's not by mistake, because I actually, the framework, like I said, came out of my dissertation research when I was doing my doctoral work. And I got the framework initially from the multicultural teacher education literature. It was a framework that multicultural teacher educators said, these are the principles that should be implemented in a multicultural teacher program, teacher ed program. I took it and applied it to my context because the principles of teaching and learning are based on how our brain works, right? It's based on how our brain works. And it's just only been recently since when we've been able to do these MRIs and CAT scans and things on the brain, do we know that we, can we actually see, you know, what happens and things light up in the brain and different activities. And so it's just probably been within the last decade that we've been able to really understand how the brain works. And so when you're applying these principles, it we need to work with the brain. That's why Zaretta Hammond was saying the brain and culturally, you know, responsive teaching, because we have to work with the brain. So if you think that teaching math or learning math is simply mimicking procedures, then people then automatically say, well, I just have to show you over and over and over again. And if the more I show you over and over again, then it'll get you'll get it. That's what people think. But that's not how the brain works. At best, we can get something into short term memory by mimicking something. But if it doesn't make sense and if we can't connect it to something that makes sense to us, it will never make it into long term memory. And that is why what we have happening in, in schools is you have teachers drilling stuff in the kids' head, doing it over again. They need to practice and practice it, even though it doesn't make sense to them. And they, at best, may be able to reduplicate it on a test. But then the next year, when they need to use it to build, you know, they need it as a part of that foundation with which to build it for the next grade level, it's gone because it never made it to long-term memory. And it won't make it to long-term memory if kids can't make connections and if it doesn't make sense to them. And this is where the inequity starts to happen. When kids who come from privileged backgrounds, their parents are able to expose them and make, con make the connections for them, give them all kinds of other additional extracurricular activities to where they can help them make those connections to where it might be able to get in long-term memory. Whereas kids who don't have those same experiences don't. And then I think what's even worse 
is in the next year when you start the next year and the kids don't remember what they learned the year before because it didn't make sense to them they're made to feel like it's them like i'm mm. dumb i'm the problem something's wrong with me my next question to you is which part of the icu care framework like which ones do you believe may be the hardest mindset shift and which ones do you believe may be the hardest skill set set shift in this environment i i do believe releasing control is one of the hardest ones just because of our perception that of what it means to be a teacher right as a teacher we feel like everything's under our control but you know the reality is that learning takes place inside of our heads you cannot control what's inside of a person's head. And so what we can control though, is the learning environment that, and that's our job. What we can control is the learning environment and how our students experience, right? Mathematics. Um, but I think releasing control is really coupled with expectations. When we're talking about that mind shift, you can't release control if you don't have high expectations for your kids. And for so many, teachers, especially if students have had a past history of a low achievement in mathematics, we don't, we don't think that they can figure this stuff out. We don't think that they can engage in critical thinking. So it's like, we don't even try. We just mm -hmm. like, well, I'm going to teach you using this method because it gets you the answer quickly. I don't really expect you to be able to understand it. I don't expect you to be able to engage in critical thinking or reasoning. So I'm not going to even bother to try. So I'm just going to teach you these methods that aren't dependent upon any reasoning. It's just going to get you the answer. Not thinking about how short-sighted that is. Because once again, as we were just saying, at best, it will remain in short-term memory, maybe long enough to take the weekly quiz, but it's never going to last to the end of the year when they have to take that standardized tests. So I think those are the mindset shifts that are most difficult for teachers. As far as skill set, I think including others as experts is more difficult, is the most difficult because it requires, if you want to be able to build the expertise of your students, you have to have the expertise yourself. And a lot of teachers, because they were only taught to mimic, they don't understand it. They don't understand the concepts. And they don't feel confident enough to, if I give the kids a problem, they maybe ask me something that I don't know the answer to. And I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable enough with that. So they stick with their own comfort level. Yeah. Speaking of a uh, comfort level, uh, the final question I, I want to ask before I ask these uh, closing questions has to deal with comfort of folks who are used to not used to math, not matter of fact, no, this has to do with everything to do with math and nothing to do with math. Like there are parents, educators, and politicians all over the country who are still saying math instruction and other content is becoming indoctrinated with critical race theory propaganda. What do you think are the most important things for these folks to understand? And what should we in education be doing so that they are responded to more effectively? Well, you know, the word indoctrination is really an interesting term that people use. And basically it means it's, it, we only use the word indoctrination when it's something that we don't agree with. <laughs> mm. 
because, you know, we're always indoctrinating someone based on our philosophy and our belief. If we agree with what they're saying, the message that they're giving, then we don't call it indoctrination. If we don't agree, then we do call it indoctrination. So, you know, I want to sidestep that term because it really has to do what, what are our what are our beliefs about mathematics? If you believe that mathematics is mimicking and it's just about getting the right answer, then you're going to believe that us asking, expecting kids to reason and understand is indoctrination. But we have to think about if, if that is really your belief, you need to be willing to say, is that working? Did that work for you? Is that working way it might have worked for you, but is that going to work for your kids? Is that model going to prepare your kids for their future? Because as I said, equity is about giving your students what they need to be successful. And what we needed when we were in school, we have we went into a very different world than what the world that our students are going into. And so that's one thing I want them to think about is making sure your students get what they need. And it's probably their needs are going to be very different than what we needed when we were coming up. Secondly, I understand the angst and the anxiety that many parents have around, well, I can't help my kids nowadays. I can't help them because I don't know the math. Well, that's still because they're operating off of this belief that math is mimicking. But I think it's a wonderful opportunity. If your kids are asked to do something that doesn't make sense to you and you don't understand, guess what? This is a great opportunity for you to model. Well, what do you do when you don't understand something? Well, let's learn together. Let's let's figure some things out because every adult has to do that. Every adult has been in a situation that they've never been in before and they have to figure stuff out. And this is an opportunity for you to help teach your kids, how do you do that? When something doesn't make sense to you, what kind of questions, what questions do you ask yourself? And so I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for parents to ask sincere questions. Well, why did you do that? Does that make sense to you? Well, let's go back and look. Let's see what did make sense. What are some things that you've done that do make sense to you? And let's, and let's figure out what was the next step and how might you make sense? What are some things you might do to make sense out of something? And a lot of students kind of going back to this whole fear, a lot of students feel like if they don't immediately know how to do the problem or don't immediately can't quickly get the answer, that that means they're dumb and they're and they so fear that. And so parents really can help kids because parents have such an experience, um, many experience of figuring things out. That's something that they can pass on to their kids and do math together. No doubt. No doubt. Wow. Well, Dr. Seda, this has definitely been an awesome and reflective ride. Unfortunately, it is coming to a close with these last two questions. How does your text, I feel like you've answered this in different ways, but just for the folks in the back who may not have heard it yet, how does your text help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming and meaningful for students. Yes. Well, it provides a lens that they can make their decisions. Teachers make a myriad, thousands of decisions every day. And if they can think about the problems that they give and the instruction that they give and the support that they give and the way they set up their classrooms, if they can think about it using these principles as a framework, then they can then see that they're making progress when it regards to equity. So it, it is just a way 
to be able to make sure that every student is getting what they need. And then would you be able to possibly bless us with a quote from the book that you'd like to close us out with? I guess I would say equity is a journey and not a destination. Kind of going back to what we were saying that the reason I wrote the book is I'm in this journey and I want you to join me and I'm reaching out a hand for you to walk with us in this journey. There's challenges. We're going to fall down along the way. We're going to make mistakes. But as long as we're doing this together, right, and that we offer a lot of grace for ourselves and to each other as we engage in this journey, it'll be definitely worthwhile because our kids will benefit from it. And that's what it's all about. It's really about them and not about us. This spin of the LP with Dr. Seda left me with a few things to reflect on, like how equality and equity are cousins, but not twins. When discussing meeting students' distinct needs through math instruction, it's important to know the difference. It's also important to know that math is about patterns, seeing them, describing them, generalizing them, and creating them. Stepping back and looking at math from this angle, no pun intended, can help us avoid narrow beliefs about how it should be taught and help us identify multiple pathways to build mathematical skills and identities. Math also shouldn't be about mimicking routines. Despite being done for generations, procedures in math shouldn't be about parroting, and they shouldn't steal all the instructional attention away from conceptualizing, problem solving, and pattern recognition. For educators to do this, Releasing control and including others as experts is important, but hard to do, especially if fears are high and expectations are low. Fears about how math is taught can best be addressed by asking questions and reflecting on what is needed for our children to find personal and professional success in the next phases of the 21st century. These changes to math instruction won't happen overnight because, as Dr. Seda noted, equity is a journey not a destination. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress. <laughs>